0: Welcome to this podcast of Thornside Stories, a mix of Sun and Cloud, a comic novel in stories, written and narrated for you by me, Christopher Cameron. This weekly 20-episode podcast series will contain all the text of the published book, presented one chapter a week. And welcome to Thornside. Chapter 3 Archdeacon Micklethwaite's Retirement Address. It's wonderful to see how many of you have come from all over the county on a raw November evening so we can properly say farewell to one another. I am truly blessed in so many ways. And before I go any further, I'd like us all to acknowledge the fine dinner put on by the A.C.W. tonight, helped by not a few of their husbands, I notice. The old church hall looks beautiful with all the decorations and place settings. Some folks wanted to have this retirement dinner at a fancier place like the Golf and Country Club, but I said I preferred to be here, in the church I've called home, for over three decades. Special thanks to Father Bannon for acting as Master of Ceremonies, and to Julie Bannon and Mrs. Higginson for putting together the scrapbook of my most memorable and even most embarrassing moments here at St. Ninian's. I will treasure it for all the days I have left, which I hope are many, and I'd like to thank the choir and Ashley Buff for the musical entertainment while we dined. Ashley's been here almost as long as I have, and it means a lot to have him and the choir contribute to the evening. I think it was Anthony Trollope who wrote that there was no greater hardship inflicted on mankind than the necessity of listening to sermons." He goes on to say that there is no other arena in which an audience is forced to sit in absolute stillness and silence and listen to something they would rather not. Personally, I might add opera to that list, but maybe that's just me. At any rate, I'm not going to preach a sermon tonight and ruin a perfectly lovely evening. Nor, thank the Lord, am I going to sing opera. Those of you who have heard me preach over the past thirty years—and yes, I see some of you from those early days here tonight— know that I always speak my mind. You also know that I like to tell colourful stories. This is a polite way of saying that some people have told me I need to be censored, that I don't speak the way a venerable archdeacon should speak. But since this is my night, I won't apologise for the unvenerable language in what I'm about to narrate. When you hear it, you can decide if there's any other way for it to be told. With any luck, It'll be the last time you'll have to hear any speeches from me, sacred or profane, within these walls at any rate. I don't blame you for thinking you're looking at an old man. I grew up a long time ago, and a long way from here, and the story I'm going to tell you happened a long time ago, too. Sometimes, though, it seems that everything has rushed past, that those old days really occurred just recently, and that those faraway places are just around the corner— Maybe that's what happens when you get old. The distances shrink. The connections become more obvious. I can see a couple of you nodding in agreement. Nod away. Just don't nod off completely, please. I want to tell you the story of Denny Toodle and the staff of Scouter Rick. Denny and I met in the 25th Highland Boy Scout Troop, which flourished for years in the suburbs of the city I grew up in until it died a slow but inexorable death Under the advance of post 1960s cynicism. In my childhood, though, Boy Scouts were part of our middle class suburban life. I have no doubt that the organization filled in some blank spaces in the lives of many boys and young men. Most of mine, I have to admit, remained blank long after I left. I remember hearing one of the scoutmasters say that the only requirement for membership was that you had to believe in God. I hadn't yet arrived at a place where I could say I believed in anything, let alone an omnipotent, ubiquitous deity. But in those black-and-white days that so many seemed to want to return to, it was easiest to go along. I did eventually manage to drum up enough focus and faith to achieve some kind of spiritual equilibrium and find my way under the church. Back in my teens, though, all I had was social timidity and a quiet desire not to stand out anywhere. I was not clean, athletic, dutiful, or selfless, as I was told scouts were supposed to be, and I was rarely prepared. Many people don't remember this, but the boy scouts were originally conceived on a pseudo-military model. Each scout troop consisted of a number of patrols, as if we would be dispatched at any minute to corral and subdue some wily enemy in the Hindu Kush. In the 25th Highland, five of us called ourselves the Eagle Patrol. Me, Randy Blackstock, Bill Halsey, Pete da Silva, and Denny Toodle. To someone who never met Denny, the best way to describe him was to say that he looked, sounded, and behaved like someone named Denny Toodle. Bulging eyes stared myopically from behind Coke bottle glasses that rested on sunken cheeks and a hooked nose all set into a head that could only have been coaxed out of his mother with bent fireplace tongs. The head itself was balanced precariously on a neck, punctuated by a bulbous Adam's apple. Up top, periodic attempts at a brush cut always ended badly, leaving a sheep of dirty blonde hair sticking up at the back of his head. He was what would later be called a nerd, academically brilliant, socially catastrophic, physically awkward— and the owner of a complete set of Fantastic Four comic books right from Issue One. Regular school couldn't hold him. In the days when no one knew anything about computers, or wanted to, Denny was whisked off to the university to play weekly chess games with the first-generation data-processing behemoth they kept there. If all that wasn't enough, he'd come from England as a small child and spoke with a lisping accent. It is simply miraculous that he survived to adolescence. I liked him. Someone once called me a loser magnet, and maybe Denny was one of the reasons. When I got to know him, though, I found he could be quite fun, and we became friends. We talked for hours about books or TV shows we loved. I borrowed all his comics and read each one. He had a lot of trivial knowledge in his oddly shaped head, and I was discovering I liked to learn this sort of stuff. None of it was useful for school, of course, which made it all the more interesting. He was also a brilliant magician. He was great at card tricks, and could lift anything out of your pocket without you ever feeling it. This last point will be important to my story shortly, so keep it in your mind. He lived in the same kind of house we all did—an average-sized three-bedroom side-split bungalow on one of the streets that wove around each other to create a neighborhood— his room was filled with plastic models of planes, ships, and cars, the kind you made with airplane glue. I had often tried to make these myself, but I always got bored after I got the main pieces stuck together. I didn't have the patience for all the little finicky things, the wheels, gun sights, radio antennas. Denny's models were impeccable. He painted every piece before he put the models together, something I thought... Think the instructions told you to do, although I never knew anyone else who actually did it. If I was an unlikely boy scout myself, Denny's participation bordered on the ridiculous. He was knock-kneed and asthmatic, which left him at the sidelines of most of the boisterous games we played. He never got the hang of knot-tying or tree-climbing or splitting wood with a hatchet to make kindling. I never saw him successfully get a fire started out in the wild. He would usually just stand around trying not to be noticed, until someone sent him to fetch water or dig a latrine or something. In those days, as part of our full kit, all Boy Scouts carried a wooden pole called a staff. The staff was mandated to be exactly five feet, six inches long, so it stood taller than many of us did at that age, and just thick enough that you could get your thumb and middle finger wrapped around it. We had to make these ourselves out of branches or small trees we had cut. We stripped off the bark... And after sanding the bare wood, we made marks, usually in magic marker, every foot so we could measure things with it. Each one of the top six inches was indicated individually, for greater precision. The idea was that we would be prepared to use our staves in the outdoors to measure and build shelters, pole vault across rivers, or drive off wild animals, if we ever had to. The founder of the scouts, Lord Baden-Powell, had written that we could lash them together with our shoelaces to make a stretcher in case one of our chums broke his leg and needed to be carried. His lordship never told us how we were supposed to walk with no shoelaces. There were stories of heroic scouts in the French Resistance during World War II defending themselves against the Nazis. I sometimes wish there were Nazis in our suburban neighborhood, so I could clobber them with my staff. Mostly, they were a pain. You had to carry your staff to scouts every week, and you had to balance it somehow if you needed both hands to do something important, like put your gloves on or sneak a comic book under your jacket at the smoke shop. It was nearly impossible to ride a bike while carrying one, unless you had a background in tournament jousting. As for running, many of us, especially Denny, ended up tripping over our staves if we had to get away from anywhere in a hurry. My staff was clumsily made, too thick and heavy with uneven black lines circling it to mark the feet and the inches. I hadn't been able to find a very straight branch, so the pole kind of meandered its way along its length. On the plus side, it had a curve in it that just fit against my arms and snuggled into my side when we were standing at attention. I can't envision any scenario in 21st century North American society in which a boy could carry a long, thick pole down the street without someone taking it off em and clubbing em half to death with it. But in our suburban neighborhood half a century ago, this never seemed to happen. My story begins and ends at a place called Camp Sumac. Camp Sumac was some distance out of the city, on land donated by some wealthy industrialist and conservative party bagman of the nineteen thirties. As an aside, after the episode I'm about to relate, I developed a strong distaste for wealthy Conservative Party bagmen, which remains even today. We had not been to Camp Sumac before, and the way things turned out, this was the first and last time we would ever visit there. But as soon as we arrived, we could tell it was some place all right, several steps up from what we were used to at our usual campground, Broken Brook Camp. Rather than army surplus tents, our accommodations were a collection of solid log cabins, placed like satellites around a grassy central parade ground. A flagpole stood in the middle of everything, highlighted by a circle of smooth, round, white-painted stones. At the top, a brand-new red-and-white Canadian flag snapped in the breeze. Another group of white stones spelled out the name SUMAC. Smoke was rising energetically from a building that must have been the cookhouse, something we noticed as soon as we got there. It was Friday evening, and we were hungry. The Scoutmasters appropriated the largest cabin— and we were divided by scout troop to occupy the others. There were several troops from different parts of the province taking part in the camp that weekend. Each had at least one scoutmaster, and the undisputed grandmaster of them all was Scouter Rick Phelps. If you'd wanted to draw a picture of the ideal Boy Scout leader, you would have used Scouter Rick as your model. His brush cut was always perfectly even. We speculated he must trim it with a pair of tweezers daily. He had a ruddy face and blue eyes that could pace you to the wall with just a glance. He embodied the military background he'd embraced during World War II, and he brought this with him to the Boy Scout organization. His troop was the slickest, best-disciplined, toughest, most accomplished in our suburban world. Scouter Rick was as much a Boy Scout as Denny Toodle and I were not. The prop that completed Scouter Rick's image was his wooden staff. It was perfectly straight and smooth— The ideal diameter, from top to bottom, honed as if on a lathe to fit the grasp of his hand. He had sanded it, oiled it, and waxed it, then waxed it again. The measurements were not written, but carved neatly into it, at each foot, giving the impression that it was a precision instrument. It looked strong enough to lever a car out of a ditch, yet beautiful enough to sit in your living room as a piece of art. It was a piece of art. If you want to know what scouting is all about, Scouter Rick liked to tell the boys, look no further than my staff. Gaze upon its length, its firmness. Imagine it in your own hands. A scout is strong, straight, clean, and always prepared. A scout must not only be this way, he must look this way as well. And then he would gaze lovingly at his staff, turning it over in his hands, caressing it, We were too young to notice anything symbolic about all this. To us, as we might later learn about Freud's cigar, a staff was just a staff. Staves were not allowed inside the cabins, so everyone left them leaning against the outside wall like harvested bamboo poles. Even among the impressive staves of the Scoutmasters, Scouter Ricks stood like the tallest, straightest tree in a redwood forest. When we entered our log cabin that first day with our knapsacks and sleeping bags, The first thing we noticed was the walls. They were spectacular. Nearly covered from ceiling to floor with the carbon initials of previous occupants. A record in relief of decades of residence. All of us Boy Scouts carried pocket knives. Another accessory that has probably gone by the boards in recent times. And for who knew how many years, they'd obviously been put to good use decorating the log cabin. I felt like I'd walked into a tomb in a pyramid the inside walls covered in hieroglyphics. There was a time capsule of history spread before us, dating back to the Great Depression. Like many thirteen-year-olds, I was beginning in those days to be aware of my place in the world, of how much or how little space I was taking up. The log cabin at Camp Sumac made me feel very small, but somehow very connected, too. The guys set to work making their marks on the little that was left of unused space on the walls most carve their initials and the year 1965 denny went one better he neatly etched the words kilroy was here into the wood above his bunk nobody knew what it meant except him but he was used to that it's an expression from the war he told me when i asked him servicemen would write it on walls where they were stationed or fought nobody ever found out who kilroy was i didn't carve anything although i had a decent pocket knife I kept it folded up in my pocket. I already possessed a pathological fear of getting caught and in trouble. This would lead me in a few years to the doctrine of Christianity, which I eventually figured out was basically the same thing. The first night in camp, Denny and I detailed ourselves to go and get firewood. On the way, we passed a couple of guys, Cliff Vogan and Jack Lister, from Fifth Highland, Scouter Rick's troop, having a smoke behind the woodpile. "'Look, Jack,' said Cliff, the larger of the two, "'while he rhythmically flicked the sparker "'of an impressive-looking Zippo lighter. "'It's Queer Toodle and his Queer friend. "'Hey, Toodle, what's it like being a gearbox?' "'Denny and I kept walking, "'and we were almost safely away when I stupidly said, "'Don't worry, Cliff. "'We won't tell anyone that you and Jack "'were out here playing with each other.' "'Cliff Vogan moved quickly for someone his size. "'He raced over and lifted me completely off the ground.' Everybody was a little afraid of Cliff. Not only was he like an unexploded landmine in every way, but it was common knowledge he owned the most impressive pocket knife anyone had ever seen, complete with a bottle opener, a corkscrew, and a very sharp saw blade that could cut branches off trees. Or fingers off hands. "'You got a big mouth for a little queer,' he said. "'Don't ya? Don't you got a big mouth?' I was inclined to agree with him. I should have just kept quiet.' He just kept repeating his mantra. Don't you got a big mouth? While Cliff was delivering his eloquent speech, Denny came up quietly behind him and with a very slight movement poked the back of Cliff's right knee with his toe, causing his legs to buckle. He fell backward onto Denny and I landed on top of both of them. Get off of me, Cliff yelped. Get off of me, you queers! Denny and I were trying to do just that when Scouter Tim came around the woodpile. Luckily, the first thing he saw in the evening gloom was not the distasteful sandwich of me lying on top of Cliff with Denny underneath, but the glow from the cigarette that was still carelessly dangling from Jack Lister's mouth. "'Lister! That cigarette! Go to your cabin!' "'Toodle, is that you under there? "'Vogan, let that boy up!' Nobody ever remembered my name. We disentangled ourselves, and Denny moved a few safe feet away. "'Sorry, sir, we just tripped!' "'Denny said, not wanting to escalate. "'Over that!' "'He pointed to Cliff's staff, which was lying on the ground "'beside a half-full package of players' lights. "'Are those your smokes, Vogan?' "'No, sir, they're Jack's.' "'So much for honour among thugs.' "'Denny and I left Scouter Tim to deal with Cliff and his contraband "'and continued on our firewood mission. "'The next day we played Capture the Flag, "'an afternoon-long game of the outdoors that everyone loved.' "'Even if you never got near the titular flag—and almost no one did—it was an excuse to run through the forest without any adult supervision. Often we would simply forget about the flag and lose ourselves in some thicket, spending the afternoon whittling with our knives and shooting the breeze. When we got back from Capture the Flag late that Saturday afternoon, the Scoutmasters called us into the cookhouse for a meeting. We were glad to go in, because it was the only place in the whole camp that was heated.' The sun was going down, and we were freezing. The four scoutmasters were lined up across the front of the room, standing at ease, but looking anything but. We were called to attention, something that never happened at camp, except when the flag was being raised or lowered. We had no idea what was up. Scouter Rick strode front and centre, keeping time with his staff. "'Some of you,' he stopped and started again, "'many of you have seen fit to deface your cabins.' We still didn't know what he was talking about. By carving your initials on the walls. This is not only disrespectful, it is strictly against the rules here at Camp Sumac. But how were we supposed to know, we protested. The walls were already covered with carved initials. That does not matter. A scout should know better without having to be told. Just because others did it does not make it right. You have vandalized the cabins. You have dishonored the troops you belong to, your fellow scouts, and the name of scouting. A fine would be levied by the camp against each offender, we were told. One dollar per letter. Those of us who had committed the crime were expected on our scouts' honour to own up. As a backup to scouts' honour, a search would be made for initials matching the occupants of the cabins. We remained at attention, but a smouldering resentment began to rise and fill the air. We knew it wasn't fair. They were the adults and we were the kids. They held all the cards.' Although we were about to form the generation that would in the near future have told the lot of them to go piss up a rope, we hadn't crossed that social Rubicon yet. We were still on the cusp between innocence and insolence. Soon after we were dismissed, Scouter Rick entered our cabin to deal with the initial carving criminals. We stood before our bunks, as if waiting to be shot. Scouter Tim followed, carrying a clipboard. Scouter Rick walked around the cabin, banging his staff on the floor with each step. The fact that he had to look closely to distinguish our wood carving from that of the past thirty years spoke volumes about how insignificant our own damage really was. "'I thought you were all scouts here. Turns out you're nothing but a bunch of delinquents.' He had each member of our troop point out, with trembling hands, their handiwork. Behind him, scouter Tim followed, wrote something on his clipboard, the dollar amounts they would owe, presumably. "'I was standing at the foot of my bunk like the others.' but they didn't even slow down as they passed me. I was already known as a goody. I could have carved the song of Hiawatha in the wood above my bunk, and no one would have suspected. At that moment I wished so much to be one of them, to be able to yell and swear about the injustice of it all after the adults had left our cabin, to curse Scouter Rick for the the poker-up-the-ass tyrant he was. Scouter Rick read our minds. You want fair, he said, stroking his staff. Fair is something you go to that has rides and games and freak shows. This is the real world. Your parents will be hearing about this little escapade. The bottom of Scouter Rick's staff slammed on the floor. Suddenly he whipped it around and poked viciously at a spot on the wall just above Denny Toodle's upper bunk. Is this your little masterpiece? We all stared at the engraving of Kilroy was here. At first we were puzzled by how he could have known whose engraving it was. Although when we thought about it, Denny was the only one with the mental scope to have carved such a thing, and Scouter Rick knew it. "'You couldn't just carve your initials, eh? That's going to cost you... thirteen dollars, Tootle. "'Do you not charge for punctuation, sir?' The staff swung around again, dangerously close to Denny's head. "'This is not the time to be a smartass, Tootle. You're a disgrace to your troop and to your uniform. "'You won't be buying any comic books for a long time.' I noticed that Scouter Rick did glance quickly back to the carving on the wall to see what punctuation he'd missed. The campfire that night was cancelled. Instead, the Sunday church parade planned for the next morning was held, featuring a sermon about doing our duty to God and the Queen. We would be taken home shortly after breakfast. We crawled into our sleeping bags that night, feeling an uncomfortable combination of sheepish, rebellious, and just plain defeated. I woke the next morning to the sound of voices outside the cabin. For a moment I thought I'd slept in, but it was still early, way too early for anyone to be up. When I stumbled outside I saw a rough semicircle of boys, all laughing at something on the ground, or sticking out of it, rather. Pieces of wood. It only took a moment to identify them. Scouter Rick's straight, smoothed, unblemished staff had been neatly sawn into pieces at each one-foot mark. Five little holes had been gouged out of the hard earth in the form of a perfect pentangle, and at each point of the star a one-foot piece of the staff had been planted in the ground. I thought they looked like pieces of asparagus just starting to grow, but Randy Blackstock blurted, They looked like dicks, like boners sticking up, and the laughter got louder as more boys came outside and joined in. In the very center of the star was the six-inch leftover piece from the top of the staff, with three of the inch markings still visible. The crowning ornament was the pocket knife that was stuck in the top of that little piece, its saw blade bent out parallel to the ground. It was undeniably Cliff Vogan's. "'Hey!' shouted Cliff. "'That's my—' then shut up. Even he could figure out a thing like self-incrimination. The door to the Scouter's cabin flew open, and Scouter Rick barreled out in his underwear— This was already reason for more laughter, but with his precious staff in pieces sticking out of the ground, a whole yard erupted. It was a forest fire of derision that fueled itself. Gouter Rick said nothing. He looked like he wanted to emit a string of profanity, but remembered where he was at the last moment. He walked over to what was left of his staff, picked the pieces out of the ground, and heaved them one by one onto the firewood pile. Looking straight at Cliff Vogan, as he picked up the last perfectly cylindrical, sanded and oiled piece of wood with its markings at every inch, he extracted Cliff's knife and folded it up. Then he marched back into his cabin. I never saw him again. Later that day, as we were being driven home, I thought about all the planning and work Denny would have to have done. He must have slipped Vogan's knife out of its sheath while we were having our tussle on the ground that first night but surely he didn't know what he was going to do with it then. So when did he get the idea? Did he sit outside in the dark for hours with his flashlight, somewhere so remote the sawing noise wouldn't be heard, slowly detaching the lengths off Scouter Rick's staff at the one-foot marks with the saw attachment on Cliff Bogan's knife, and then coming back to use the knife's blade to dig five holes exactly four inches deep, forming a perfect pentagram around the central hole then finally sticking each piece of the staff into its own hole. After the uproar and confusion of the great carving caper, my mind set off on an unexpected course. I became obsessed with figuring out the good guys and the bad guys. It was fairly clear that whoever had set the dollar-per-letter fine was a sadistic jerk. Even as teenagers, most of us could see what a shameless cash-grab the whole thing was. Obviously, the carving of initials into wood was not the only gouging going on at Camp Sumac. In today's money, Denny Toodle was on the hook for more than fifty dollars. If they'd wanted to punish us, there were plenty of ways—garbage collection, yard cleanup, painting, floor scrubbing—but someone at Camp Sumac wanted the cash, and they basically extorted it from teenage boys. So what about the others? Scouter Rick, the other Scoutmasters, Denny, Cliff Vogan— and all the knife-wielding initial carvers who had just followed the pattern that had been set before them by countless others. There was a story for every one of them. No doubt, the boys grew up to be men and had children of their own. I've always wondered what kind of fathers they became, what their sons learned from them. I left the Boy Scout shortly after that. What little had been holding me there evaporated that day at Camp Sumac. I didn't make a fuss about the carving incident— I just decided the time had come to start thinking for myself a bit more. And I did. My interest in trying to figure out good from evil, right from wrong, and then trying to figure out what to do about it, led me to what I ended up doing with my life. Perhaps some of you studied James Joyce's portrait of the artist as a young man in school. Well, I never had the kind of overwhelming religious revelations that Stephen Daedalus did. But that year I started to assemble a lot of moral questions, and I began to look for answers. This is what called me into a career in the church, and ultimately it's the reason I'm talking to you this evening. And here is the only sermonizing I'm going to do tonight. We've all met Denny Toodles, Cliff Vogans, and Scouter Ricks along our various paths. I'm sure you know some today. As you walk along those pathways, take the trouble to distinguish what you want from what is right and good, and then make your decision about what to do. Make your mark but don't do something just because countless others have done it before you. Consider the end results of your actions and how they will affect others. Play the tape, as some people say, all the way to the end. But most of all, do not be impressed or intimidated by arbitrary measures, by appearances, by beautifully crafted baubles. Remember that you are the only one who determines your measure, your stature, your worth. And remember that everyone no matter who they think they are, can always be cut down to size. From the bottom of my heart, thank you, and God bless. I hope you enjoyed this chapter of Thornside Stories, A Mix of Sun and Cloud, written and narrated by me, Christopher Cameron. I'll have another chapter for you next week.